You are now listening to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank i'm here with arthur Arthur, do you like arthur or art i go by art okay art please for i know about you from like twitter bio and everything but for the audience out there listening if you want to give everyone a little disclaimer about who you are sure uh so professionally i teach religious studies at saint francis university it's a small uh private school catholic school in central pennsylvania between johnstown and altoona uh, up on the mountains my areas of interest sort of scholastically in terms of what I write about is religion and sports. I'm uh, currently finishing a book called uh, Bodies in Motion, a Religious History of Sports in America. And I've done a lot of writing on uh, the religious history of sports in the United States. And I also write about something called that, that scholars refer to as American civil religion, which is the ways in which our political structures and political discourses kind of take on a religious character. So think about the monuments that we have. Think about, I mean, just think about the debates we're having about origins right now with 1619 Project and all of the reactions that come to that. Um, these are, I, I like to frame them as civil religious topics insofar as I think that that gestures toward the, the significance of these things in our public discourses and how we kind of uh, develop our, our, our identities um, as, as Americans, uh, broadly speaking. So those are the kind of the two big things that I, I sort of write about. Here, I teach courses about uh, the historical person, Francis of Assisi, which has been in the news more lately because of Pope Francis, who took on St. Francis's name. So people have wanted to learn more about him. I also teach a religion and sports course here um, because we have so many athletes uh, that go to our school. We're actually a division one school, even though we have less than 2000 students um, so we have 30 to 40% of the people here are in athletics. So I, I try to teach to that. And I also teach uh, healthcare ethics because that's another big part of our identity here at St. Francis is uh, allied health. So physician assistant, physical therapy, occupational therapy, nursing, obviously we have pre-med as well. Um, so I teach courses around that. So um, those are the kind of professional me, the, 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 the rest of me, me. Uh, I, have, uh, I have a family, two kids, uh, wife, and, and, and I really enjoy the life that we get to live together here uh, in central Pennsylvania. Uh, and, you know, in terms of a hobby, I, I do distance running. I have for the majority of my adult life. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be 48 here uh, in a couple of weeks. And I still like to get out and run everything from a mile to a marathon. You look great for 48. Um, Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, with the way technology is going on, the 48 is really old anymore. I think, you know, we look at old now is probably in their late seventies or eighties, but there you go. I'll um, take that. <laughs> for bringing it back to the religion aspect of things. And I've talked to ex cult people and I've kind of wanted to get other perspectives. I've obviously from religious, religious perspective as well too, because as much as I might poke a little bit fun of it, there's a prime importance of what it does play, which is the belief in the things as well too. And it's very interesting how the times have gone where there was two things you could never bring up to the dinner table. I'm pretty sure you can guess what those two things were religion and politics. And guess what always gets brought into everybody's Twitter bios and anywhere it can possibly be brought in or even mentioned into the name before you even introduce yourself. And that is uh, politics and religion. And I think 
you know, I was always wondering, I was like, I wonder when we're going to reach the age of when our president would not be a Christian, maybe an atheist president. You know, that was something that seems impossible, seems like it will never happen because there's always been a standard of what you would consider your president to be, that he would be a Christian man um, and come from these aspects. But I feel like with people wanting to be a woman as president as well, too, and then also the concept of now we have a celebrity or was a celebrity, Trump was, kind of blew the doors off of what would you consider a standard where I'm not scared of where religion's going. I'm not religious per se, but I think it plays a prime importance. And I think with the evolution, and if we can really correlate it to society's non-religious, I guess, reasons, we can look at the concept of 47, close to 50 something percent of the population that's non-religious. And now the country's kind of being, it's always worse and worse and worse. People always say, this is the worst time to be alive, worst time to be alive, or it's the best time. I don't know how they look at it, you know, but is there a correlation there? Because we were talking a little bit before this was I've talked to ancient historians. I've talked to people that have gone through Norse mythology, Greece, everything. And I've always brought up the question of, do you think it was the question of, is there an afterlife? Because each of these Norse mythology or ancient mythology, when it comes to Greece or you start to look at the concept of everyone was obsessed with the afterlife and having a belief of where do you go when you die? And I think what happens is if you get into the scenario that I'm in, where you start questioning, is there just nothing when you do die? What does matter? You reach an existential crisis about yourself. Like I've kind of going through them in my own. I'm not looking for a religious answer, but I'm looking for a concept of there's a chain reaction of factors that are leading people to these points. And I think uh, maybe it could be psychedelics or maybe it could be religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love everything that you're, you're kind of uh, gesturing toward in this because you're bringing up a lot of good points. So let me just kind of um, lean into one of them and thinking about the afterlife. Uh, so in the discipline of religious studies, I think we all start with the question of what is religion? What do we mean when we say this word? And in the United States, that often gets reduced to things like church attendance, right? If I say, are you religious? There's a kind of assumption of church attendance. But I think that broadly speaking, thinking about religion less about less in terms of uh, human institutions and more in terms of human behaviors uh, helps us kind of reorient this a little bit. So to your question of the afterlife, religious institutions have made uh, afterlife a primary concern. And so a lot of religious discussions are, uh, might we say like vertical, mm -hmm. right? It's what's going to happen when I die? Will I, will I go to heaven or will I go to hell, right? Up, down. Um, but there's another way to understand religion, which is more horizontal, which has to do with how is it that I am to live my life? Um, and I think that, you know, you're kind of raising this question of existential concern, which is a very common one to raise because we do not do a particularly good job of teaching people how to live a meaningful life. You know, you, you went to a school, I assume, like a public school or, or something to that effect, and you took all sorts of classes on algebra and chemistry and, and these, these topics that we say, this is important, right? But at what point do we have an education on how to make our lives meaningful and valuable? And uh, I guess I think what's interesting is, is that institutions of religion, I think, emerged to help people along with that, Right. 
that at the end of the day, we as human beings are not particularly good at figuring out how to live our lives on our own. We need help, you know? Um, it's, I think it's why all of the major world religions refer to humanity as children, right? Because all children need help. But we live in an American society that I think um, doesn't like to think of ourselves that way. We like to think of ourselves as independent, as being able to figure it out on our own. But I think it's hard to do that. What do you think? I think it's hard to figure out when you start looking at science. Science starts blowing doors off things that might have been considered just concept of religion or the concept of belief. You know, I would never take anybody's belief from them. If they want to believe that they're religious, I honestly don't care what you believe in. It's flying spaghetti monster. I got my license under that as well, too. Um but I, I, I mean, I started getting really interested into it a long time ago when I started diving down the realm of parody religions. Now, if you can consider them parodies or you consider them maybe insults, I don't think that way because the way that they were able to find deep meaning into something, I realize you can do that in your everyday life, whether you want to blame something or say something was because of God. A lot of people use that as maybe a good thing or they'll use it as a bad thing. Even people that aren't religious, myself, I'll be like, what does God hate me? He's pointing a microscope down on top of me. It's easier to blame blame something that takes blame off of yourself. Yeah. And yeah. I think if you are going to be like, I'm not religious, any problem that I ever face, I don't need to blame God for it. I'll just blame myself because it's something I set into the way. If you, if I'm not going to blame him on the good stuff that happens, then I, why the hell would I blame him on the bad? And you reach these concepts and it's easier to get someone that's not religious to do a podcast because they're all, they'll be open to talk about how bad it is too. But I also try and focus in on these conversations about the good aspect of things too, whether you're doing a sport event or whether Jim Carrey says that one day he's going to make $10 million and then five years later, he makes $10 million exactly where you start getting to the question of, is there another thing out there that's leading into that? Whether you want to talk about karma or willing something into the universe, sure. But whatever you label it under, my deeper understanding is that if there is a God, then it would be all around us. We would all be this encompassing thing, this unexplainable thing around us, which I don't think it's a person. And I, I don't know if someone believes it, if it is a person, sure. But I think the issue that people have with religion boils down to the stereotypical issues you're seeing now with the Catholic church and other issues. And I think I've heard it best from someone who was a minister. And then I also heard this from a rabbi as well, too, is that there's a way to trust your church, but there's also a way to be religious and be religious in the exempt of not being social, but being inside of your home and keeping it private and keeping the core family values that are important to just sustaining a household or, you know, sustaining stability in life. And I think that is the perspective I start to notice when people can just point at the bad. Now I'll joke about the bad. If you, the, some of the stories about like the guy that made fun or was getting made fun of by like 40 something kids and he called down to God and God and down two bears to kill these kids and i don't know what that means but i guess it just means don't be a jerk but uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a more of a deeper core meaning to it you know there's people want to not people kind of want to take it for face value but i think it has a deeper understanding much like a fortune cookie will tell you something you get to pull out what you need from it yeah no i think that one of the things that human beings are kind of programmed to do is to find uh um, is, to, is to find causality, right? If something happens, we want to know why it happens. 
And that can be for good, that can be for bad. And so I think that 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 is a space that religions have traditionally stepped into, which is to say, okay, you know, when I do make the $10 million, why? Right, because life is so random. And some people, uh, you know, make make are, are all kinds of talented and, and, you know, acting like you're saying about Jim Carrey, uh, but never make that kind of money. And then Jim Carrey does. Why? Well, you know, let's come up with a solution for that. Right. Or why do bad things happen? And that's all always where kind of the language of religion steps in. Um, it could be punishment. Right. That's oftentimes how these things are translated. Natural disasters are, are translated in those terms. And so I think that, you know, this is where kind of religious language oftentimes operates. But as you're saying, it can bring up a lot of uncomfortable kind of logical conclusions, right? Um, and then it can create a sense of anxiety. Um, there's a, a scholar who I really like who, who, who's written a lot about the um, prosperity gospel. And I think you were kind of making allusions to that. These um, pastors who effectively say that prosperity or lack thereof is a consequence of your relationship or lack of relationship with God. And so you can understand that people who are having a hard time have additional anxiety because they think they're alienated from God because they don't have wealth, you know? And I could see that as being really unproductive from a mental health standpoint, um, as opposed to an understanding of a God, you know, who is suffering with me right, who is, who is, you know, kind of engaged in, in the challenges that, that I'm dealing with, um, rather than this kind of judgmental God. The other thing that I think you're raising that I think is interesting, which is the entanglement of politics. I think that for many people, you know, I, I teach at a university, and if I mention, um, you know, a, a certain strain of, of, of Christianity, there's going to be an assumption that a certain political party aligns or does not align with that. So take the environment, right? Um, a lot of my students will assume that the environment, which has become a political issue, um, is something that Christians are either indifferent to, or um, you know they they have positions against the kinds of political measures that are being taken. But that's not always the case. Interestingly, right? The Catholic Church has been very um, outspoken uh, in terms of what kinds of measures have to be taken to address the climate crisis that we're seeing globally. Um, and so, you know, this entanglement with politics, I think, to get back to your point, is something that I notice sours a lot of particularly young people because they think that, you know, essentially religion should rise above, pun intended, um, these kinds of concerns, but they don't, right? And we see these two things, uh, you know, kind of caught up. Does that connect? At all? Do you, do you see I that? look at uh, if you had to if you look at the basic chariot, um, I would say representation. If you see the Spartan on top of the chariot with the two horses that are pulling it, one of those horses is the government. One of those horses is religion. And for the longest time, these two would never really. Inter well, the government could never encroach on religion. I remember saying this probably around episode 200. So almost two years ago to a, one of my rabbi guests. And I told him I was like, it's going to get strange when you see the government start messing with religion. And he said, that'll never happen. It just doesn't it, you show me evidence of that happening. Not even two weeks after that episode was posted. It was when that Catholic uh, 14 priests were arrested. I think it was like, um, um, 
a little bit over two years ago, were arrested. I sent him that article. The guy blocked me, which I'm okay with. That's how strongly he feels. I was, like I said, I didn't want to come off like I was destroying a religion or anything, but I start to understand is that you're seeing the religion or anything to do with religion more and more in bad light in the news today. Now, I don't know if that's the amount of media exposure, but I look at it like what we're not seeing is stuff that's going on with the government. You start to notice that these are two forces, and instead of one putting their fingers into the other one and the other one doing the same back, it's just one pointing their fingers into the other one and trying to rip open a hole into it, which is weird because I don't know if that's because of the amount of people that are less religious today, but I also think that is not helping the scenario because much like I say, you cannot blame something for your issues, much like you can't – you'll never give them the good when it does happen. If you do something and something goes your way, you don't ever say God, but you know what does happen? When you're going through pain and you feel like you're about to die, you know, I have a digestive issue. I remember I'm not religious, but I remember being on my bathroom floor being like, oh, my God, God, if you just save me, I'm not religious, but you look for help. And who do you look for help with? Is this this belief that there's something bigger out there? So whether that exists or not, I'm not saying it does. But what I'm saying is that wonderment or that look for is something of a door that's shedding a little bit of light in on a scenario you might feel like is just completely dark. And I think that's the important aspect, whether it's true or not. That belief is just like Santa Claus. Santa Claus is important for young kids. You can't just tell them when they're young that this doesn't exist. It, it, you need that wonderment. You need that amazement. You need that speculation. Like, what if? What if? I like that because it's hope, and hope is really really important like i was going to say a bad word but hope is really important in some aspects of things and it seems like in these days and ages everything just seems dark and grim and i think that's because there's not a lot of hope out there you hear hope from your politicians you used to hear hope from your priests yeah yeah I, that's a great point um so i just i also one of the courses that i teach uh here is a course on mr rogers so oh dude oh please he's a long debate that dude's a psycho i've called it for the past i, I oh what? you're you're perfect because look man i don't think he's like a murderer but i think he might have been a cross-dresser and that's not an issue now but there's something about him man i've called kevin spacey bill cosby all before their allegations then i but i've always said for the longest time mr rogers there's just something off about that guy there's something that's not being open. My buddy was like, he's a green beret. I'm like, no, that's not true. It's a lie. Yeah, that's, that's not true. But yeah. there's something about him where I don't think he's necessarily a bad person, but he's hiding something and I don't know what it is. And I'm please, for the love of God, tell me he's got like a secret that no one knows about. No, damn it. I, I can say that with, with as full confidence as anybody can say. And uh, I would say he's been dead for uh, close to 20 years now. If there was anything, it would have come out at this point. There's a whole center in Latrobe that has been collecting, you know, archival. What you see in him is who he was. I, I, and I, that, I can't do it. They, the same thing people say about Martin Luther King, but nobody knew he was promiscuous with other women and nobody knew that he smoked cigarettes as well, too. And that, that, that's been known, known now if you look it up. But I, I, same thing with Mr. Rogers. I feel like he might have something in the basement. I'm not going to deflame the guy. I I, I never grew up with them, but I see, I watched a video like exposing the dark evils of Mr. Rogers. And I was like, Oh, here we go. And then I watched it and he's praying next to a woman who's dying of like some type of cancer that wrote, I was like, Oh dude, that was not what I wanted. Yeah. No, I, I think he's the real deal. I really do. And I've, I've spent a lot of time on this 
And it's, I, you're not alone. And for the longest time, I think that that was always the assumption is that there's just, that's not who he really is. Um, and I, I mean, look, I could be wrong. I don't know everything about everything, right? Um, but I've been studying this pretty closely for the past couple of years. And I just think that there are certain people uh, in the world that really are kind of wholehearted in the way that he is. Not perfect, right? Um, nobody's perfect, but he really did strive to live a life that was as meaningful as he could make it. And it was a habit. I mean, that's the thing about him. Like everything about his life was oriented toward making his life as, you know, affirming and valuable as it could be um, to his, he had an incredible self-care routine. You know, he'd wake up every morning, he'd pray for people by name. He would swim. Uh, he would weigh himself. He always wanted to weigh himself to be 143 pounds because that's the exact number of letters of I and love and you. Um, like he was a vegetarian. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He slept eight hours a night. He took naps every day, right? Like this incredible rigorous routine um, enabled just, him to kind of be him. the person that he was. I just picture him. The, the more you give me these, uh, this type of information, I just now start picturing slowly the Buffalo Bill clothing coming onto him instead of the sweater. I, I'm sure he was a great, maybe he was so religious where that he felt forced into being this perfect, what ideal perfect person was. I don't know. I just, I've, I've seen suppression before. I went to school for chemical dependency. So it's being able to root out if someone was addicted to something. And that's why a lot of people who are addicted to something end up turning to religion. You need another outlet with, uh, mostly it's because you got a problem going on in your life, but the suppression aspect of things, which I notice a lot. I mean, if people want to bring it to the Catholic church, there's a suppression issue. You can't be forced by something, anything. That's why I'm like, so not anti-government, but anti just, you know, you see people with the mandates, religious exemptions that are coming out and be like, well, your religious exemption does not work here. And it's like, you can't force people to an aspect of doing something, whether it's under the disguise of protecting other people, you just can't control people. It's never worked throughout history. It's never going to work because it's that suppression. It's that I'm being told, and now you have lost the steering wheel to your own life, which is what I am. I'm, I'm in support. I want people to feel like they're in control of their life at all times, whether they want to believe that Jesus is taking the wheel, pun intended, Whatever it takes, I want people to understand that you can't be forced into something, which I feel like a lot of people are like this. You see this with politics. Oh, it's the lesser of two evils. I picked Biden or I did this. What about independent, man? There's always another option. Whether Oh, they'll never win. How do you know if you don't try? I'm not. I, I, I'm probably would side more with independent, but I look at it a concept of you, you boil it down to choices and then there's no other options. There's always another option. There's always another perspective that you're not seeing because it's not given to you or it's being kept from you. I don't know what that is much like a kid doesn't know that they can go past the, their street they can go down the block if they wanted to, because their parents haven't let them do that yet. I'm like, you can't put people in a scenario where they have to pick and choose my buddy who's um he's been at his corporate job for four or something years now they're forcing him to get the vaccine so he's like i have to go look for a new job and i'm like i because he's nervous about it and i'm like that's good to be nervous be i'm not anti-vax i don't i'm not any of that stuff but i hate this one-sided stuff whether you're you're full it you're 100 for it you're a karen whatever you want to call it or you're you're thinking about microchips i'm like what about the people that are just 
curious and just want to know more and just don't feel comfortable. I'm like, there's always a middle ground on things as well too, but people want to put you into a peg and I don't like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I, I, I told you I teach healthcare ethics as well. And we do talk about vaccine hesitancy and there are good reasons that people are vaccine hesitant, you know, and, and some of this is cultural. Um, you know, we, when we talk about um, black Americans, you know, you've got a history, if you know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments of something, you know, when I teach that in healthcare ethics, if you just lay out the, the, the facts of that case, you know, which was they were studying these, these black men in Alabama uh, on, that, that, that had contracted syphilis and they had allowed that syphilis to progress even after penicillin was discovered as an effective treatment. Um, and they did it for decades. If I just told you the facts of the story, you would think I'm telling you, uh, you know, an off the rails conspiracy theory. I, I've, I've went deep into that as well. Too. Right. Project Adversion was probably the worst thing I've ever seen where they would make you change the, your gender basically all on your sexual orientation. If you were gay and you were a guy, they chop your dick off and then they would make, oh, you're a female. So now it's normal. They used to do that in Africa. It was some nasty stuff. So this is why I tell people, I'm like, it's why I don't trust the government at all. I have the operation paperclip, everything just research that stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm okay to question things now when they look, I told them that they, that I'll get the vaccine. If they just tell me it came from that lab, just fucking right in my arm, put it right in there and whisper it into my ear. But I just look at it like a concept of you lied too much. There's a lot of trust issues and you're not, you're still not being honest when someone like your parent would lie to you and you saw that trust break out of a young kid's eyes you learn to never do that because you never wanted to hurt or feel that type of pain. It's not the pain of I'm mad at you. It's the pain of I'm disappointed. That stings so much more. They're still doing that today. And they're still lying to you about these things, whether it's the beagle thing with Fauci, whether it's this and this and this, just be honest about your shit guys. That's all I want out of anything is just hundred percent honesty. If you don't know, tell me you don't know. No. And I think that that's an entirely reasonable thing. And, you know, one of the ways that you can assure that you will not um, convince people to do something is to shame them, right? Shame is not an effective tool for uh, kind of convincing somebody uh, to do something. And so, you know, with, with vaccine hesitancy, as you're saying, I think that there are um, a lot of people who have concerns and when they voice them, they feel like they're being uh, shouted down, right? Um, and, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's not unreasonable. And I think that what you're finding in healthcare is that the, the physicians and the people in medicine who are effective in convincing people to get vaccinated are doing so by listening first, right? Hearing what the concerns are uh, and then responding in a way that isn't you know, patronizing, uh, but is obviously factual. Um, but also done in a way that elicits trust. You know, one of the things that we learn in caregiving is that people, you can give them all the facts in the world, but if they don't trust you, they're not going to listen to you. The story I always tell is when I was about your age, actually, um, I had just gotten out of the Marines and about a year later, I started having seizures. And at that point, I was very skeptical of you know, quote unquote, Western medicine. And so when I went to a neurologist, he gave me a prescription for anti-seizure medicine and I wasn't going to take it. 
um, because I didn't feel like uh, he had ever heard me. He just walked into the room, sat down, looked at his chart, and handed me these pills. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, do I have epilepsy? He's like, blah, 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 blah. right. Like, I don't know. I did not trust him. And here was a, here was a neurologist at, you know, late stage of his career. So somebody who had all, all the training, all the expertise, all the experience that you would want to get a quality diagnosis, but I wasn't going to listen to what he had to say. What changed my mind was a friend of mine. I was a student here at St. Francis. He was going into the physician assistant program and he had to do a patient profile. And so he decided to do one on me. And I told him the story of, you know, my seizures, this physician and this medication, which I didn't want to take. So he listened to me, he took it all down. He did his assignment. And then he went and researched the medication. He went and researched my condition and he found me and he sat me down and he said, okay, here's, here's what this medicine is. Here's its benefits. Here's its risks, which any medicine you take is going to have risks, right? Every medicine, even aspirin, right? Um, and he says, basically he got through his whole pitch to me. And he said, at the end of the day, you need to start taking your medicine. Mm -hmm. And I heard it and I started. And um, had he not done that, I am convinced that I would be dead right now. I would, it would either Showed be status epileptus or I would have had a seizure while I was driving and run my car off the road, hurt myself and hurt somebody else, right? But like, I, I think of that example all the time. When you lead with compassion, right? When you lead with caring, you're much more willing to connect with somebody, right? Um, and what you're saying, if you lead with honesty, if you think back to the lockdown, um, you know, early in the lockdown, this is something you hear a lot. It's like back then, you know, Fauci and the rest of them were saying, no, you don't need to wear a mask. You don't need to wear a mask, which is true, right? Why were they saying it? Because they didn't want to run on masks because they were worried about first responders not having access to these things. That's a valid concern. Yeah. Say that, right? Say we want to make sure the first responders have, have all, of, all of the things they need first, and then we can start talking about the general population. But if, if you're putting out there, oh, you won't need masks and all that stuff, you're setting yourself up to be in exactly that position where everybody's saying, wait, you know, what is true, right? Yeah, well, even the situation now, well, Fauci's got till November 19th to talk about the fact that he lied in front of Congress. The NIH did fund uh, gain-of-function research that they found out $450,000 that was given to that lab to do uh, experiments on mice. And they go, oh, you didn't ask the question about mice. I'm like, look, I get the lawyer speak. I get around looping around the contract, sure, to prove that you're not wrong. But there's a it's, it's not hard to tell if someone's giving you a story, and there's a really interesting interview with Kerry Mullis, who was the guy who invented the PCR test, and he talks about Fauci in 1993. You have, I'll have to send you the link to it, um, but it's just him wearing a red shirt. It says Rainforest Cafe or something on it. He's sitting in his house, and the guy's talking about HIV. This is during the AIDS pandemic where Fauci blew that out of the water like every single person you know is going to get AIDS and die. Um, hey, similar to what the pandemic when it first started. Everyone was going to die. made it seem like a Thanos snap. But he was talking about Fauci. He goes, he's just a mouthpiece. He's someone that's reiterating stuff that he read, and he's just saying it to the public. He's not the actual scientist, but nobody cares because he's the person that's on the TV, and he's looked to as this. But he's like, don't trust him. And it's just so eerie because you start looking at things now where I'm like, you haven't really gave anybody the opportunity to trust you in a lot of aspects of things. And he just was really real with it where he was, it was focused on the AIDS pandemic at the time, but the questions was being asked, he was being blunt. It was hard to hear probably at the time, 
but it was something real. I'm like, that's what I wanted during this whole thing was be honest with the stuff. If it hurts, it's going to, it's going to freak people out, but she did it in a worse way, trying to cover or do whatever. And it, it's really made it a lot worse. And I don't, I don't know what the turnaround is for it. I don't, I mean, I think we're eventually just going to have to, he's, I think something Biden's not going to get reelected or something like that unless he resigns. And I'm like, I don't know if that's, he's going to resign. He's probably going to get like a pat on the head. Like, sorry, you can't do that anymore. We're just going to shove you in the back room. Um, Much like the church probably seems to move everything to another room. I want you to focus on the issues. You're never, if you don't have closure with people, this is why we have people that still talk about this thing. This is why people, it's going to keep on going until you have that immediate initial closure that tells people like you can't wait a month you can't wait four months you can't do what you did with the uh george floyd thing and wait a couple months later and then have a court case about it that lasts two weeks on television because you want ratings you can't do that you need to start focusing on it here and now and everything that people fight to go get stuff done it just what what, what gets done we had the black lives matter protest did, is there been any change has there been any what you can sue cops now? They defunded the police in one area and then they ramped it all the way back up because people were walking around the street with frying pans. How about you get an actual issue that you can actually tackle and fix? It's very strange when PETA has to make an announcement about beagles. I'm like, they're the ones banning animal slurs. When does when do we look at PETA as like a guide source for them to be able to stop this type of thing? Oh, because it involves animals. Well, we're, we're getting treated like we're dogs, basically, in a way of do this, do that, do this. I'm like, where's the f – if you just add trust in, you're going to – it's like the uh, – what's it? You get uh, more bees with honey than you do vinegar. It's 100% the truth in this aspect as well, too. I think this po political stuff is – it's just people that don't, they don't really care about other people, and they want to get their own purpose across. And I think that's not their fault. That's – if you're going to look at what runs a country better – is the most effective way to be productive, and that's by making sure that everyone kind of falls in line in an aspect of way. I'm not anarchy at all. The government is there for a reason, but I think that the people that are involved in it is much like being a CEO of a business like Walmart. You don't care about your employees. People look at Bezos like he's the scourge of the – the earth or something like that. I'm like, he's just a guy running a business. Those people get paid. He doesn't care what, how horrible your conditions are. You need to have more connection with people that starts with conversation. It starts with community. You used to get community from your church. You used to get community from your neighborhood. Where do you get community now from Twitter? That online dumpster fire doesn't work out so well. Right. No, I think that you're, you're raising some great points about, you know, what is it um, the kind of, what is it that makes a, a business particularly effective, right? Is it, is it really just sort of bottom line stuff? I've been reading more leadership books lately and kind of one of the th things that they all circle around is that the, the most, I, I don't know if I want to say prosperous, but like uh, the most enduring organizations are not necessarily the most profitable. Um, but they can be. And, and a lot of what they're talking about are businesses that um, engender a kind of loyalty from customers as well as employees. Um, that both of these, but, that, that having loyalty from both of these is very important. So let me kind of give you an example. Uh, in one of the books that I'm reading, he keeps coming back to uh, Harley Davidson. And the neat thing about Harley Davidson is, is that people get Harley Davidson tattoos, right? Yeah. Like my grandpa. I, grandpa. <laughs> okay. Okay. There you go. Right. 
I, I really like my Subaru, but I'm not getting a Subaru tattoo, right? I'm like, it's just Harley Davidson is more than just a motorcycle, right? It's a whole idea. It's a whole way of life. And people structure so much of their identity around it. Um, you know, what makes, what makes Harley Davidson a great company is not just the motorcycles. Obviously, those have to work in order for them to, to be prosperous. But it's what they're selling on top of that. And kind of internally, good organizations also can, you know, inspire some kind of loyalty. So right here in central Pennsylvania, uh, we have a gas station called Sheets. And people are incredibly loyal to Sheets. Like that's, yeah. I'm one of them, right? Like I have a loyalty card, you know, but people who work there, I know a lot of people who work there and they treat their people really well. Now, again, financially, could they make more money if they were ruthless? I don't know, but they don't have to pay a whole lot of money to train and retrain people because they, they have an incredible retention rate. And part of that is, is people could go and they could make more money somewhere else, but they like how they feel working for sheets. Somebody uh, leave with this story. Somebody who I met once was kind of high up in the organization and tragically was losing a parent. And I guess the Sheets owners found out about this, went into his office, said, you're done here. Uh, you need to go be with your father. And uh, they gave him a ride out to the airport and they let him use the Sheets corporate jet to go visit his dad before his dad died. Mm. You know, um, and, you know, that's a place people want to work. And when you have people who believe in the mission of the institution, they're more likely to put more of themselves into it. And then it becomes more prosperous just because people are invested in it. Um, and so, I mean, I guess it kind of gets to your point about generally authenticity. And when institutions, whether they're government, uh, whether they're you know, businesses, whether they're churches, aren't authentic in living into the mission that they are saying that they, you know, hold to, people can smell it. You know, it's it just, it comes, it just is, it's as plain as the nose on your face when somebody is in some way hypocritical or phony or not really the person that they purport to be. I think it, 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 it gets that kind of response of just frustration um, and, and almost like despair. Like, why am I even trying with you? You know, <laughs> my cousin's a couple months younger than me, but he's the complete opposite in the religious aspect. He's pro he's he's involved in the church. He does extra everything he possibly can, whether it's, you know, uh, some of the child um, daycare stuff that goes on. He takes care, does, you know, events for them, goes to every single holiday thing, helps cook up the Thanksgiving dinners that they end up serving out and stuff. It's the community aspect that I can understand from it. The, the amount that it's part about being part of a group. Now, do I think those groups can sometimes become toxic? Sure. But I also think that there's a beneficial aspect when you look at the base layer of it, which is just being around people that agree to the same things as you. We're all hive minded in a way. People like to get into their group. The hard part is breaking out of those things as well, too, and trying to find other ways you can connect with people. See, we bond over our similarities, but I think you get a lot farther if you bond on your differences because then there's more to talk about. There's more to learn from. But we've been always told this. Now, when people say like, oh, you sound like oh, this political party, you sound like this political party. Is it that or is it just the basic concept I've always appreciated about a religious text, which tells you it's about, about love and kindness? 
Now, does a lot of those things work out effectively? In some cases, they're not carried out properly. But I think the aspect of love and kindness, the way of just treating people the way you would want to be treated, this concept of like, okay, people can bring into, well, the Bible says anti this. Okay, well, I mean, when was that freaking written when that wasn't okay? You know, you start looking at a concept of nobody thought the times would change this much. Nobody thought there would be this drastic reformation of whatever you want to call everything for the good. Yes. But you look at a concept of – you look at the base layers of things, like the base layers of who this person really is. Are they more than just a name? Are they more than just a political party? And not a lot of people really want to do that because people feel like they don't have the time. They feel like there's a time consumption. See, my thing is with the government or just with any institution, you have to make it open for all. But you can't disguise yourself as open for all and really not be. And that's a lot of what we're seeing that's going on today. There's people – Um, you mentioned a, a point that you end on I was going to add to. I think I just spaced out on it. But I, yeah, I've, I lost it. They'll come back. All right. Uh, no, I think that – you know. Ah, brand loyalty. First... Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, when you work for a corporation and they treat you good, you know what you're starting to see now is is you're starting to see people that are getting treated like crap that won't take it anymore. And I think that's because the pandemic really showed you that your 30 years in a company doesn't mean jack in the grand scheme of things. And I, I like that. I want people to hold on to that. But I'm afraid maybe we're almost two years in, another year from now, another year after that, five, 10 years, you're going to end up losing it. You're going to end up forgetting what that was like and realize that your worth is only valued in this company. And that's not true. People look at it like, I can't leave my job because I need to pay the bills. When I asked my buddy why he's leaving his company after four years, instead of just getting a shot into his arm, he said, because it's just being forced into a position that I feel like I don't have a say in my own life. And I'm like, you know what? That's a good point. You should never feel like that. And people feel like that every day at their jobs. Yeah, a business can do that to you because you're their worker and they'll pay you whatever, as long as they're paying you and going by human ethical standards, whatever. But is that worth your own happiness? Is a second, there's, what is it, 972,642 days in an average lifespan of 73 years? Why oh, would wow. you waste That's a second it. of that? Why would you be, why would you waste a second of that being worth, feel like you're worthless? It doesn't make sense to me, man. It's when I, people say, Robbie, you have a problem with authority. I have a problem with authority because I don't like someone telling me I have to be the way that I need to be because I feel like I'm doing pretty damn of a good job myself. There you go. So let me kind of like, one of the things I think you're saying that's just spot on is one of the things the pandemic has revealed to me is who is an essential worker. And what are some of the things that we found is that a lot of the people in our labor force who we've taken for granted, we couldn't live without. Um, you know, think about all of the farm workers, for example. Um, let me kind of take this back to a kind of Christian practice. One of the Christian practices that always used to um, make me feel a little uneasy was saying grace before a meal. Okay. Like this was, you know, always something that I felt like, I think intuitively, I felt like it was performative, right? The person at the front of the table was doing this to sort of bring attention to themselves. Um, and so I, I've always kind of has had a kind of allergy to that. And then somebody explained it to me like this, that if I'm sitting down to a meal, just take a second, just take a second to remind yourself that this didn't have to be here for me, right? The meal I'm having 
doesn't have to be all on this nice little plate for me to eat so that I can go about my way. All sorts of people and processes are in place to get that food to me. And it's, it's incredibly <laughs> uh, intricate and, and also just, just very you know, widespread. I mean, you know, the tomatoes that we're getting in off seasons are coming from Florida, you know, and people have to pick those by hand and then those have to be distributed to trucks. And then they have to be sent to these distribution centers and then to our grocery stores and then finally get to us. Like that doesn't have to be the way that it is, but it is the way that it is. So like taking a moment to be grateful for all of the people and processes that have gone into this. And if I don't have the tomato pickers, I don't have any of this. And they're the least paid of anybody in the chain, probably you know, uh, and, and so too are the truck drivers and all these other things. And so when we're at a restaurant and there is a waitress, how grateful are we for that person, right? I think prior to the pandemic, most of us just took that for granted, but now, you know, geez, let's, let's, let's practice gratitude in those settings. Um, and, and show in, you know, in, in at least say, thank you. Right. <laughs> um, and, and understand that they don't have to be doing this either. And so this, this just kind of, again, as you're saying, you know, people don't want to enter the labor force now. Well, why would they, if they're going to be treated like garbage, right? Making more money at home anyway. (laughs) Right. Well, there's that too, but that's not going to last forever. And we all know that. Um, And so, you know, can we come out of this and say to the waitress, say to the truck driver, say to the farm worker, um, you know, at least recognize that what they're doing is valuable and valued. Um, I don't think that's they're not making as much money as everybody else. I don't think it's a personal or a people issue. I think it's a systematic issue. The system is set up in a way to make you this just not really a trash human being, but just it's not set up in a way for you to be a good person 24 seven. It beats you. It makes you tired. And when you go home, you don't want to hang out with your kids. You just want to go to bed and then you wake up and do it the next day. You don't ever recount or de-stress or do anything. And then when you have these me days, these me days should not exist. You should never have a me day if life wasn't so damn hard. And it's not life. It's the way that this system has been running to make it so you're burning out yourself every single day. The pandemic, that first two weeks was awesome. Everyone was like, thank God, hopefully nobody dies or nobody gets sick and we're okay, but we could just stay home and not have to go to work. But then they needed work because that was a big part of their time. You know, domestic violence went up because people necessarily couldn't be in the household. I can't even be in the house with my family for more than seven days straight without somebody reaching for a butter knife. You know, you start getting to a point where I think a lot of the time that people are acting this way is the same reason why people get road rage. You're subconsciously thinking well, you're, you're thinking normally saying, I'm just driving to work and this dude just cut me off, but you're subconsciously on a level 10 because deep down in your brain, you understand that one mistake could end your life and you're not going to be able to go to whatever you're supposed to go to. There was a study done on that. I think it was Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist talked about that. Um, you start to realize that the way that going to work, maybe it's not the person at the counter that's pissing you off. Maybe it's something other that's going on to your mind. See, society is now set in a way to make you fall into a system to be productive. 
people aren't terrible people. It's just the world around them happens to get them into this place where they feel like they're on a one track mind. And I don't think a lot of people understand it. There are times I have to catch myself when I'm at work and I walk outside and I smell the air and I feel like it's fall right now, dude, 49 degrees out. I smell that cold air hit my lungs. I'm like, I just want to sit outside and just enjoy this. Like there's not, a, it's not chilly. It's, you know, I'm wearing a shirt. It's fine. And I'm just realizing that there's a more intricate system of the world that can over really take away the foundation that is whatever we would call society. I think boiling it down to the roots, this is why people love nature so much. This is why every time you get high, you walk out into nature, you try and get in touch with your roots because there's something primal about it. There's something important about it. And you built up four walls that protect you from the outside, but how much is it protecting and how much is it taking away from you when it comes to the basic things of elements? I think the world has a natural way of resetting a person. Much like um, conversation can naturally reset somebody. There's basic feelings and emotions that are crippled right now. And I think if you look at what those crippling things can be, that can be an aspect of religion. That can be an aspect of self-worth. That self-worth can be valued when you walk outside. For me, I have an ego issue. You tell me like, you're an amazing kid. My freaking mind's going to explode. But I walk out and I look up at the stars at night. And I'm like, man, I'm this little tiny speck in the grand scheme of things that really doesn't matter as much as I think I do. And yeah, you could take that a bad way, but it also can humble you in an aspect of I'm not the most important person. Everyone doesn't need to drop what I drop what they're doing to uh, support me. I have to understand as I am a human being much like anybody else. And we all in the grand scheme of things play a very, very, very minuscule part. And that really humbles me to an aspect. But also I look up at the sky and go, where are all the stars? And you start to go, oh, light pollution took that away. Well, now the world and society is now slowly taking away your natural resets, the ways that we're able to balance you out after a stressful day to the point where what's going to be left, man? The wind might go away eventually. You got too many buildings. Do you ever get that cool breeze that comes through? No, because there's a skyscraper with, you know, Stevie Wonder's face posted up on the side of it. <laughs> it's just not, it's not there anymore. No, I, I think that your point about kind of the way in which modern society um, prioritizes busyness uh, and production. And so I think about when you were talking about that, um, there's, a, there's a philosopher by the name of Martin Buber. He's a Jewish philosopher. And he wrote this very influential book in the 1920s, I think, called I and Thou. And basically his point was that um, our authentic human relationships is where we experience the divine, right? That like in, in, in our true connections with each other, uh, this is where we have these life-affirming experiences that, that make us certain that our, that, that our life has value and meaning. The problem that Buber identified, though, was that kind of the industrial mindset has infiltrated human relationships so that we treat people not as unique creations of um, a loving God, but rather as means to an end. And he called these relationships, I, it relationships. In other words, I am the full and complete human being. You, on the other hand, are an object that I can use and dispose of just like, you know, I can in, you know, in, in my consumption, in my consumption habits, right? I get a, I get a, you know, a plastic thing. I use it and I throw it away. 
And what Uber was noticing, uh, you know, a hundred years ago was the industrial mindset was like treating people like that. So why am I making friends with this person? Oh, because they can help me advance in my career. Why am I staying away from this person? Oh, because associated with them would help, would hinder my, you know, earning potential. And all of us are just judged on what we can contribute to the system of production and consumption, right? And so what he's warning against is reducing all human relations to nothing more than these objectified consumer products and saying instead, um, if you want to have a life of meaning, cultivate those relationships with each other and with creation. And that's an important point that you raised, right? Is that, that stepping outside into natural wonder has an effect of taking all of those issues that are occupying all of your brain space, right? And making you feel like all of, you know, all of these issues are, you know, just so big in my mind. And now I get to feel small. And I think that was a great insight on your part, right? I get to feel small in comparison to the universe. And now those problems also seem infinitesimally small. Um, you know, having that relationship with creation helps you manage those things. Having, you know, authentic, real relationships where there's no kind of contingency. There's no, okay, I'm friends with this person because, right? Um, it's just the connection is there and, it's, and, and there's no question. Um, you know, Boober's saying that, you know, pure friendships like that are, are rare in life, um, but they are the places where we find like real value. And that's kind of what we're all, you know, looking for, you know, is, is uh, th these kinds of assurances that our life is more than just a progression toward an inevitable end, Yeah, you know, that we matter. If I had to ask you, what would be one thing, at least through your career or just your life in general, one thing that you're proud of and one thing that you're looking, I guess, but you can't say kids, can't say family, take the family part out of it. I understand. I knew that was going to be your first thing. As soon as your eyes sure. are up, you're like my children. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one thing through your career, what's one thing you really appreciate? And what's one thing that you learned to understand? Mm. That's a great question. Something that I have learned to appreciate um, is balance. Um, and I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I feel like I've done a good job of giving attention to my work life, to my home life, and everything in between to my, to my personal well-being. Um, and I think that because of that, I've been able to do reasonably well in all of those places. And so balance is something that I try, that I, I work on every day and something that I'm happy that I've done reasonably well. In terms of things that I've learned, I think one of the things that I've learned is that not everybody loves the things that I love the way that I love them. <laughs> so as a professor, I almost quit in my first year because I wasn't getting the response that I thought I deserved. Um, and it, it almost sounds ridiculous in hindsight for me to even say this out loud, but like in my first year, I was like, all I have to do 
is go in there and bring my infectious personality and everybody's going to love the discipline of religious studies like I do, right? And that couldn't have been met with a more resounding thud. Um, at the end of the day, people have their own particular interests. And so I, have, I had to come to terms with the fact that as a student myself, when I was in the classroom, I was the exception uh, in a religious studies class, in a philosophy class. Like not everybody was just like every time a yeah. new idea and concept came along that I'm like, oh, this just takes me, makes, this makes so much sense, right? Um, I was the exception. And I've had many people who, who, who are drawn to these topics uh, like I am, but the majority aren't. And so what I had to come to understand was if I can encourage people to appreciate the things that I am excited about, not necessarily understand at a deep level or practice or, or be involved in like I am, but just appreciate, um, then I've done something. And I think this helps when I think about the things that I've learned to appreciate. I appreciate the arts, painting in particular. I love good paintings. I can't paint at all. I can't draw. I can't do stick figures, Have you ever right? Tried it? Yeah, oh yeah, and I'm horrible. Um, it doesn't matter. I never matter, thought right? I'd be good at it. And then I watched the Bob Ross documentary and I've been- Oh, there you go. Bob Ross stuff. is terrific with that. But like, you know, I can appreciate, I'll, I'll give you a, one that I certainly can't do and will never do. I can appreciate somebody who can dunk a basketball. Yeah, I will never good. dunk a basketball. That's a good one. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that we all have to understand kind of getting back to an earlier point, diversity is a strength. And the more people we have doing different things, the more opportunity we have to you know, witness excellence, to celebrate together, um, to, to live together, and to prosper. Um, if we all just did the same thing and we we're all thinking the same way, I mean, in addition to life being disastrous, it would be boring. Art, man, I appreciate you giving me your time to do the podcast, man. Seriously, I really enjoyed talking. I love your perspective, man. You're very easy to talk to, especially when I go out on my little rants and stuff. But, dude, I want to have you back on again because I need to. you need to send me some Mr. Rogers stuff, um, mostly so I can do my own deep dive and a deeper analysis onto the man because I still am in the belief that he's hiding something from everybody. But, you know, if you say otherwise, I trust you after this conversation. Being okay, good. With you. Okay, good. Uh, we can have that conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> is, is there a place where people can find you? Is it just your Twitter or any links you want to shout out? Uh, Twitter, I have a website, ArthurRemillard.com. Um, yeah, those are good places. All right, I'll make sure I link it all in the description. And um, is there anything you want to say to anybody out there listening before we wrap up the show? Thank you for listening. That's a good one. I like that.